Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and as usual, here with me in the flesh, in the flesh, in the Dark Poutine studio, Matthew Stockton. Still here. Still here. <laughs> Still kicking around. It's been a couple of years. It has been a couple of years. It's gone by quickly, hasn't it? It's gone by really quickly. You've almost done as many episodes as the previous co-host now. So what did you get up to this week? What did I get up to this week? I was writing. I'm still writing my book. Okay. So I've been writing that in earnest. Nice. <laughs> I wrote about 10,000 words for my Good book. Good for you. Yeah. I did uh, a wedding and and my wedding anniversary. Your wedding anniversary, that's 17 right. 17 years married. Right. Yeah. So we're recording this the day after Canada Day. Right. So, so. it's a few weeks later. Yeah. But yeah, so Canada Day really is wedding anniversary day in my household. Just so you remember. Yeah. <laughs> Folks, just so you know, Matthew won't be breaking in on this episode very much because we're going to leave the comments to my friend David, who is the son of the Alexanders. Yes. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. In the city of Richmond, B.C., a distressing incident unfolded on January 26, 2012. It all began when two RCMP officers promptly responded to a call from a residence on Aztec Street. The desperate voice on the other end of the line belonged to Joanne Alexander, a 61-year-old woman who beseeched for immediate assistance, pleading for someone to, quote, take us away. She further disclosed that she had consumed sleeping pills adding an air of urgency to the situation. The officers hurried to the residence only to discover a chilling scene upon entry. Joanne and her husband, John Alexander, were lying in their bed. John was deceased. Tragically, their faithful family dog lay motionless beside them. 
the somber confirmation of its untimely demise. While Joanne was swiftly whisked away to a nearby hospital for urgent care, the authorities commenced their meticulous investigation striving to make sense of the harrowing scene before them. A shocking revelation emerged. John had met a violent end, succumbing to blunt force injuries. The solemn diagnosis, a heart-wrenching case of domestic homicide. After a conversation with the police, Joanne was arrested and charged with second-degree murder. The trial that followed would forever alter the trajectory of the lives of Joanne and her family. As we delve deeper into this tragic tale, we explore the events surrounding John's tragic death and Joanne's trial and conviction. And in an intimate conversation, we will hear directly from my friend David, who is the son of John and Joanne Alexander. David courageously opened up about what he has endured over the past decade and beyond since his father's passing and his mother's imprisonment. This is Dark Poutine episode 277, The Alexander Family Tragedy. The following episode includes discussions of suicide. If you need help, you can contact a crisis responder to get help without judgment 24-7, 365 days a year at 1-833-456-4566. For more information, please go to TalkSuicide.ca. You matter and are deserving of help. If you're outside of Canada, please Google Suicide Help. John Alexander met his future wife, Joanne, during their high school graduation in Vancouver in 1967. They got married in 1972. He and Joanne had two children, a son, David, and a daughter, Shannon. They were proud grandparents to Shannon's son, Nicholas, at the time of John's death. John pursued psychology at university and later became an elementary school teacher for grades 4 to 6. His passion for teaching was evident but the job was challenging for him. He cared deeply for his students and eventually experienced burnout. John drove a taxi for nearly two decades, but he had to quit his job in 2003 when he started having seizures, which made him unfit to drive. Consequently, he became unemployed. In the fall of 2011, John underwent brain surgery, hoping the procedure would end his seizures and enable him to drive and work again. The surgery was successful. He was recovering well, often sleeping a lot. His doctor, Dr. Javedon, mentioned that John's progress toward being seizure-free was excellent, and his emotional health and depression were improving. Felicia Wong, his physical therapist, testified that he met their therapy goals and was motivated and hard-working. John had other health issues including diabetes, depression, and chronic back pain. Joanne was a devoted caregiver to John. She stayed by his side in the hospital when he underwent brain surgery months before the incident that took his life. After the surgery, she accompanied him to all his medical and therapy appointments. She actively engaged in discussions with healthcare professionals to assist in his treatment. These professionals who testified at the trial portrayed Mrs. Alexander as a caring spouse deeply involved in her husband's healthcare. No evidence suggested that Joanne had any explicit hostility or animosity towards her husband. There was no hint of any past physical abuse from either spouse. They shared a close relationship spanning over 45 years. During their last conversations, 
John's friend Wendy remembered his excitement to celebrate his birthday and his love for playing dominoes. David recalled his father playing the rock band video game after surgery during their last Sunday night dinner, appearing content and serene. David even gave him a haircut for his doctor's appointment the following day. John enjoyed simple pleasures like visiting the dollar store, getting a meal at Burger King, grabbing an iced cappuccino at Tim Hortons, and driving around the river looking for herons. His friend Wendy described him as warm-hearted and adored by Mrs. Alexander, highlighting the strength of their marriage. From all accounts, John Alexander was a good man. On January 26, 2012, Two Richmond Royal Canadian Mounted Police Officers, Constable Lair Thomas and Constable Bayluck, were called to a residence after a woman made a 911 call. The call came in at 1.29 p.m. She pleaded for someone to come and take us away and mentioned she had ingested sleeping pills. The officers arrived at the house at around 1.44 p.m. to investigate a situation they understood to be an attempted suicide. Constable Lair Thomas and Constable Bayluck announced their presence loudly identifying themselves as police officers as they entered the house. They continued to do so as they went through the residence and finally entered the bedroom. There, they found two individuals in bed. The male individual in the bed was found unresponsive and determined to be deceased, while the female was lying on her back, shaking and crying. Despite Constable Lair Thomas's attempts to communicate with her to understand what had happened, she did not respond. The deceased male wore a black toque and was cold to the touch with no detectable pulse. There were no visible injuries observed on him at that time. In the room, Constable Lair Thomas noticed a hammer at the foot of the bed and a small knife, possibly a scalpel or exacto knife, on the left nightstand. Two bottles of pills were on the right side of the bed and an empty pill bottle along with what appeared to be a handwritten note was found at the foot of the bed. Constable Lair Thomas did not read the note. The room was described as being disordered with numerous items strewn about. The couple's dog, also deceased, was found under the bed's covers. According to court documents, there was no apparent trauma to the dog. When the police officers requested an ambulance, they used the code Sierra Delta to indicate a sudden death. Upon the arrival of the Emergency Health Services EHS paramedics at 2 p.m., they found Joanne Alexander to be semi-conscious. They moved her from her bed to a stair chair for transport, and she was able to support some of her own weight during this process. She was removed from the residence around 2.06 p.m. and placed on a stretcher, where she again supported some of her weight. During this time, an officer observed her mumbling incoherently. Meanwhile, another RCMP member, Constable Poirier, arrived at the house around 2 p.m. He noted a two-page suicide note taped inside the front door. The residence was cordoned off with yellow police tape. Poirier learned from the husband of Joanne Alexander's cousin about John Alexander's surgery six months earlier and that he had suffered from a debilitating neurological illness. The paramedics asked Constable Lair Thomas if he knew what substances the female might have consumed. He informed them about two pill bottles found in the room prescriptions for someone named John Alexander. The paramedics then transported the female downstairs using a strap chair. Constable Lair Thomas followed them to the ambulance and the hospital in his patrol car. Constable Lair Thomas left the house with an unclear understanding of what had transpired. 
He knew they'd found a deceased individual who was presumed to have died in the bedroom, and the other individual in the room was visibly distressed and required medical assistance. Joanne was transported from the residence in an ambulance. She was alone with the EHS paramedics while Constable Lair Thomas, a junior officer, followed the ambulance in his police car to the hospital. Lair Thomas, a French speaker, had recently completed an eight-month English training program and was still attending language training one day per week. After the ambulance left, Constable Baluk stayed in the room with a paramedic and the deceased man. According to court documents, at 2.08, when the paramedic removed the toque from the deceased, Constable Baluk observed injuries to the deceased in three areas, a large black eye on the right side, a bump at the front of the forehead which looked split open or like a goose egg, an injury on the right side of his head which was caved in a bit on the side above his ear, and dried, not fresh blood on the side of the head on the indent and top of the bump. End quote. Baluk relayed his observations when the General Investigation Section and Serious Crime Unit members arrived. The house was secured as a possible crime scene due to the uncertainty surrounding the man's death. I-HIT was also notified. Upon arriving at the hospital at around 2.27 p.m., paramedics wheeled Mrs. Alexander into the resuscitation bay due to her unresponsive state requiring urgent medical attention. She scored 7 out of 15 on the Glasgow Coma Scale, prompting concerns about her airway, a potential overdose of either Zopiclone, a prescribed sleep aid, or Nitol, an over-the-counter sleep aid that includes diphenhydramine, was suspected. Upon initial examination, the emergency physician on duty, Dr. Gabriel Piper, observed that Mrs. Alexander's airway was clear. She was breathing independently, and her heart rate and blood pressure were slightly above normal. When the doctor attempted to insert a device to keep her airway open, Mrs. Alexander refused and closed her mouth. During the neurological exam, she was somewhat resistant, even squeezing her eyes shut. She did not follow commands to assess her motor function and had an inconsistent pain response. Because of these irregularities, Dr. Piper concluded there was a voluntary aspect to her actions. Dr. Piper determined that Mrs. Alexander was stable from a cardiovascular perspective and no immediate neurological intervention was necessary due to a combination of the suspected drug effects and her uncooperative demeanor. The prescribed treatment was intravenous fluids and observation until the suspected medication effects subsided. Dr. Piper stated that the hyperventilation observed during the initial examination was likely not caused by medication but could have been stress-induced. The police were present, stationed in the hallway and occasionally at her bedside. They initially did not enter the resuscitation room and gave no instructions to the medical team. Joanne Alexander was placed in a two-bedroom with a dividing curtain. Constable Lair Thomas stayed nearby, moving in and out of the room when medical staff attended to her. While at the hospital, the officer had three phone calls with his fellow officers. One of them instructed him to have an audio recorder ready in case Joanne Alexander wished to speak. At 4.06 p.m., Joanne Alexander opened her eyes and spoke with Constable Lair Thomas. She confessed that she had taken an unspecified number of sleeping pills. The conversation was difficult due to background noise and Joanne's low voice, so parts were indecipherable. She suddenly exclaimed, No, have to go to jail. 
This statement startled the officer, and he asked why she said that. Joanne did not respond to the question. When Constable Lair Thomas asked what had happened, Joanne said she didn't want to discuss it. Constable Lair Thomas tried to assure her by stating that he was there to help understand the situation. He introduced himself by his first name, Alexis, and explained that he was a police officer with the RCMP. Mrs. Alexander replied, requesting him to ask questions that she could answer. However, Constable Lair Thomas didn't comprehend what Mrs. Alexander meant, so he asked her to clarify if she couldn't or didn't want to answer his questions. Joanne responded by asking him to ask a question which she would respond to with either yes or no. Following this, Constable Lair Thomas resumed his questioning, trying to validate his hypothesis that the deceased person might have died in their sleep or due to a sudden death. The officer asked Joanne if she could tell him what had happened, to which she replied, I'm supposed to die. When the officer asked why she thought she was supposed to die and informed her that she was in the hospital with nurses caring for her, she asked him to tell them not to. She broke into tears after being questioned about why she wanted to die. The officer reassured her that he was there to help and would listen to anything that she had to say. When he asked her why she had taken pills, she replied, just to die. When he asked why again, she stated, because I have nothing left. The officer then asked if she intended to leave with her dog and husband, and she confirmed that she did. In an attempt to establish a timeline, Constable Lair Thomas questioned Joanne about her husband's actions on the day that he died. Joanne confirmed her husband was alive when she woke up, had breakfast, and went back to bed around 9 because he was depressed. However, she said she couldn't remember much after that. At 4.19 p.m., the conversation was interrupted when Dr. Piper arrived to examine Joanne. Joanne was awake, alert, and exhibited no signs of drowsiness. The doctor later said that her movements were normal and showed no tremors. She could also talk, answer questions, and maintain a conversation. She tearfully stated, I'm alone now, and I don't want to go to jail. Mrs. Alexander admitted to Dr. Piper she had attempted suicide around 1 p.m. by consuming approximately 25 nitol pills, an over-the-counter sleep aid containing 50 milligrams of diphenhydramine per tablet. It was confirmed that that drug was present in her system, though the quantity couldn't be determined at the time of the toxicology test. During the doctor's assessment, Mrs. Alexander stated that she had no symptoms and was feeling well. This assessment lasted about 10 minutes, and the neurological exam results were normal. Dr. Piper didn't observe any signs of impairment and had no concerns about her cognitive abilities. He concluded that the effects of the medication had worn off and no significant effects were observed at that point. Meanwhile, while Dr. Piper examined Joanne, Constable Lair Thomas discovered that the deceased individual, John Alexander, had sustained head injuries. Determining this was suspicious, Sergeant Lee instructed Constable Lair Thomas to read Joanne her rights as a suspect. When Constable Lair Thomas returned to Joanne's bedside at 429, he noticed she seemed agitated. After obtaining further information about the deceased husband's head injuries, the officer gave Joanne an official warning at 4.33 p.m. He informed her she was not obliged to say anything, but anything she did say may be given in evidence. Initially, Constable Lair Thomas asked Joanne if she understood what he had just said, to which she responded positively. 
In the conversation following Joanne's being informed of, of her rights under the Charter, Constable Lair Thomas and Joanne Alexander spoke about what happened at the Alexander home. The constable tried to get her to talk about her earlier statement about not wanting to go to jail. Joanne alluded to her husband's injury, saying, well, obviously John didn't get those bumps on his head by himself. This led to a back-and-forth Q&A between Joanne and the officer, during which Constable Lair Thomas misunderstood what Joanne was trying to say. He misinterpreted her statement as suggesting John had inflicted the injuries on himself, prompting Joanne to deny that interpretation. The constable then tried to clarify the situation, saying, okay, yeah, he had something on his head, to which Joanne confirmed with a simple yes. He then prompted her for more information about the incident, but she shifted the conversation, suggesting that the constable was trying to build a case against her to send her to jail. Constable Lair Thomas tried to assure her he intended to understand what had happened. However, he mistakenly suggested that she said John injured himself, prompting a significant admission from Joanne. She corrected him, saying twice, I hit him on the head, clarifying that she was the one who caused John's head injuries. Constable Lair Thomas, shocked, asked her to confirm, You hit him. Moments later, at 4.35 p.m., Corporal Hind entered the room and formally detained Joanne Alexander under the Mental Health Act for her own protection. She was not physically restrained at any point during the ambulance ride or during her time in the hospital. The next day, RCMP officers executed search warrants at the Alexander residence. They discovered five suicide notes written by Joanne to various individuals which provided further information about the tragic situation. Four days after the initial incident on January 30, 2012, Joanne Alexander, who had no prior criminal record, was arrested for the second-degree murder of her husband, John Alexander. After a quick break, we'll learn what happened next and hear from John and Joanne Alexander's son, my friend David. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. All right, and we're back. Uh, Matthew. We'll just have a brief conversation a little bit. So what are your thoughts so far? Sad. Yeah, it is really sad. It's sad. It's mm-hmm. um, it's not a good situation at all, to, to say the least. Right. Complex and really painful. That is partially why I wanted to make sure that David was here to tell the story. Yeah. Because it is so complex. And we'll hear from him, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, toward the end of the show, okay. after I'm done telling the story. Okay. Joanne pleaded not guilty to John's murder. The defense in Mrs. Alexander's trial had called upon Dr. Lorasby, a forensic psychiatrist, to testify that Mrs. Alexander was in a state of automatism or unconscious behavior during the killing. It was determined that John Alexander had died two days before Joanne's suicide attempt. She had spent the intervening time preparing to take her own life. She undertook several actions to alleviate the stress on David and Shannon. 
These included attempting to tidy the house, filing income tax returns, and transporting important possessions to their daughter Shannon's suite within their home. The court also heard evidence of severe financial stress faced by the couple who lived off the proceeds from selling their home and borrowed money from friends and family. Joanne emailed some friends and family on the morning that she decided she would die to let them know of her plan. The email read in part, Dearest ones, please forgive me. My mind is mush. Help the kids and mom. I've left them in an awful fix. John never understood if you dig a hole and can't see your way out, it's time to stop digging. He was so unhappy except for everyone else. I can't stand it anymore. If it's possible, remember me fondly, and please help the kids all you can. You have all been so supportive and such good friends. None of you deserve this. Some people think this is the coward's way out. For me, it is the most difficult thing I have ever done. Don't contact Shannon or David. I have left a letter for them, and the police will contact them. I am so heartbroken. End quote. Upon receipt of the email, RCMP were notified, but they were already aware of the situation by that time. A jury reached the verdict in March of 2014. They did not find enough evidence to support the claim of automatism, finding Joanne Alexander guilty of the second-degree murder of her husband, John. The judge, B.C. Supreme Court Justice Jean Watchuk, wrote in her sentencing decision that, while rejecting the defense of automatism, the verdict does not dismiss the evidence of her stress, fatigue, and depression. Before the offense, both Mr. and Mrs. Alexander had been experiencing depression. Mrs. Alexander was in financial and emotional distress at the time of the crime. There is evidence that she had contemplated suicide and even made an attempt to take her own life after committing the offense. These were mitigating factors. The minimum and maximum periods of parole eligibility for second-degree murder are 10 and 25 years, respectively. The defense sought a minimum 10-year sentence. The Crown suggested 12 years before parole application. Joanne was given 11. Joanne received backing from eight letters of support with commendations from friends, family, and her adult children, who described her as nurturing, supportive, and devoted to her family and husband. Before her arrest, she played an active role in her grandson's daily care, and at the time of her sentencing, Joanne's daughter Shannon was pregnant with her second child, Tegan. The family regularly visited Joanne throughout her imprisonment. While in prison, Mrs. Alexander made constructive use of her time by working to build the prison library and continued working there every day. Additionally, she engaged in counseling sessions while incarcerated, having met with a prison psychologist 78 times from September 2012 to June 2014. Just, after, just over eight years after John Alexander's death, Joanne, a model prisoner, was released from the penitentiary to a halfway house in White Rock, B.C. Her son, David, continues to support his mom, but of course, the feelings are complicated. Sadly, Joanne's daughter Shannon was not there to welcome her home, having died suddenly just before Christmas in 2015. While working, at Shaw, while working with him at Shaw Communications, I became friendly with John and Joanne Alexander, with John and Joanne Alexander's son David, and we've remained friends. I heard about what happened soon after it had, and watched this kind and gentle soul go through a horrible ordeal. We began discussing the possibility of having David on the show to talk about his family tragedy in the early days of Dark Poutine. 
Now it's time. What follows is my conversation with him. How long have we known each other? Because I started at Shaw in 2010. And uh, you had been I had been there for a year and a bit. Year and a bit. And were you in support by the time that I met you, or were you still on the floor as a TSR? I think you were, you were working towards support at that point. Um, I had an interesting journey there because uh, after getting TSR support, mm -hmm. I went on to overnight for a while. Right. Um, and my first night of supervising the overnight team was actually the second Vancouver riot. Oh my goodness. That just celebrated its 12th anniversary. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. It, it was no. that long ago. So let's get into this. Where were you when you first heard that A, your dad was deceased and your mom was in the hospital? Well, the way everything started mm -hmm. is I got a call from my sister okay. while I was at work at the, at the Shaw Tower mm -hmm. saying that her son Nicholas had not been picked up from daycare. Okay. And... So she was worried because that's something that would not ever happen. Like my mom was always the one to do that and she would never, mm -hmm. um, you know, she would never falter on that. And if there were a reason to do it, she'd kind of call either my sister or the daycare worker and say, you know, something's up. So Shannon had a suite in your parents' house. Uh, yeah. Uh, she was kind of in the, the, the back suite of the house that they were living in. And Shannon would have been at work at this time too. Yeah. Okay. She says, mom hasn't picked Nicholas up from school. What's going on? Again, I said, I'll, I'll uh, finish up work because I was like five minutes away from being done anyway. Then we'll see what's up. And then I get a call and, and my sister's crying saying, I just caught a call from the RCMP and told us that we need to meet them at the, the Richmond detachment off of uh, Five and Stevenson. At the time I wasn't driving. So I made my way through to... Um, like transit. Transit. Yeah. Uh, my sister picked me up at Richmond Center and, and we headed down to the main RCMP detachment in Richmond. Mm -hmm. um, and... So they brought us in and asked us questions about, um, you know, is there any uh, access into the house that, that, you know, you don't know about? And, you know, they were asking us non-specific questions. They weren't giving you a lot of information at that point? Not yet. Okay. Eventually they, they got to it that something happened to one of your parents. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we didn't know. What thing? Sure. Like, you know, did my dad have an episode and, and you know, hit my mom and run away or sure. did, like what happened? Right. And then they sort of break it down to us that my, my dad was found deceased and my mom was recovered by ambulance okay. and then was uh, put into the acute psychiatric uh, ward at okay. Richmond General. Like, what are your initial thoughts there? Like, what's going on? You know, like, that's what I would be thinking. Good Lord. Um, we were both in shock at that point. We didn't quite know. Sure. We didn't quite know what to think mm -hmm. because that's certainly not something, I mean, I'm yeah. not, I'm not trying to laugh through it, but it's certainly not something that, that you hear every day. Right. You know, for, for me, I've always been one to get through heavier times by using 
humor. Humor? I know. That's why we're friends, I think, because we, <laughs> we have that sort of similar way about us. And I think that's, you know, that's what our friendship was has been based on all these years has been sort of joking around. So Yeah. Yeah. No, we've, we are commonly punny guys. Yes. Once what had actually happened started to come to you, when was that? When did you learn what was really possibly gone on? What had happened between your parents? It would have been about a week after my mom got uh, arrested. Okay. You know, effectively saying that um, times were really, really tough mm -hmm. and they were um, financially desperate. So did she tell you this? Yeah. Okay. So she told you what had gone on. Yeah. Wow. What do you think right out of the gate when you hear that? I, I think that, you know, if there are people that are, are kind of not prepared for their financial future, mm -hmm. that it's going to be something that you'll see happening to a lot more people. She talked about two different things. Okay. She talked about being financially desperate. And he also talked about my dad finding that he wouldn't be able to drive again. And that was a big thing for him. Because he drove taxi. Yeah. Yeah. And so she found him at one point, she says, with uh, uh, like a steak knife in his ear. Yeah. In his ear, trying to hurt himself. Yes. She loved your dad. Oh, yes. Yeah. This is, I think, what gets lost in this story. Yes. Right. Whichever thing is true. Right. And I don't know if I necessarily will ever get to know which one of these is the real truth. Mm-hmm. And I've come to the realization that that's something that I had to let go. Mm. In any case, um, she sees him with the knife in his ear. Yeah. She goes to, to grab it uh, and pull it out. He grabs her hand mm -hmm. and tries to help get her to help push it in. Uh -huh. And it was at that point that, that she snapped. Mm. Like she completely blacked out and, uh, you know, he's... When you see someone that you've been with for 40 years trying to kill themselves. Right. Yeah, you don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah, and that's got to be a traumatic thing. So it traumatized her to the point of doing what she did. Yes. Yeah. So that first conversation with her uh, when she was, was telling you about what had gone on, that had to be one of the most difficult days of your life. Probably had begun to suspect something had happened between them because she's been arrested at this point. Yeah. So there didn't seem to be anything defensive. Mm. So it wasn't like she was. Was trying to was, make up an excuse. No. Yeah. And there wasn't any sort of like, there wasn't any self-defense type mm -hmm. stuff, but. Uh, right. Um, she had tried, uh, she had taken a bunch of sleeping pills. Yes. After what had happened, happened. Mm -hmm. And then had called 911. Mm-hmm. And said, come get us both. Basically, the idea was being, come get us both so that, um, you know, our kids, especially, you know, my sister and her son, yeah, wouldn't walk in and see all this. Yeah. But inadvertently, she ended up saving her own life. Mm. Um, at that time, you know, she obviously didn't want to. Right. But she wasn't in any sort of clear frame of thought at all. Right. I mean, I watched you after I learned about what had happened. I, I was, you know, this is long before Dark Poutine. Yeah. I I watched you go through hell personally. I watched that eat at you, you know, and um, I always wondered, and I, I never really asked you or talked to you about it, but 
were you offered any help? Was there help there for you to like a professional to talk to or any of that kind of thing? Did the RCMP or some organization offer any help at all? Well, the RCMP offered, you know, victim support, that right. kind of thing. My manager at the time, Shaw, was really good about saying, you know, whatever bereavement time you need, whatever time you need just to be off and away from stuff, yeah. Yeah. we'll figure it out. Sure. Uh, so that that was really helpful. Mm-hmm. And for for a good couple of weeks, my sister and my nephew and I all stayed with my aunt in Stevenson. Okay. You know, so we kind of did our, our thing there, but it, it got to a point where, you know, I needed to get back into a routine again. And yeah, go back to work. Um, and then, you know, work was, work was sort of my, you know, it sounds cliche, but you know, you, you put yourself into your work to forget about what's going on outside. Oh, I fully understand that. <laughs> yeah. That is what I do as well. You said that your parents were in rough financial straits. Yes. In hindsight, was there anything that you can look back at and say that this was going to happen? I suspect there was not. I wouldn't say that that particular situation would be something that would happen. Mm -hmm. But I'm fairly certain that given time, the walls would sort of break down. Sure. Um, But you didn't see that. You didn't see any of that kind of... No. You knew your dad was, you know, your dad had had a surgery recently and, and he was struggling physically. Yeah. And you probably knew he was struggling with depression and stuff because of all the stuff that go, I mean, that's natural. Yeah. Yeah. In hindsight, you know, kind of hearing about the, the knife thing and sort of our last night together and, and my dad making a point of coming down and spending time with us and and stuff, because a lot of, a lot of the, the weeks before he would, spend a lot of time just sleeping the evening away just by himself yeah yeah and so my ex-wife's father mm-hmm. on kind of his last couple of nights he was very stoic and emotionally closed off type of person yeah and so the night before he had committed suicide he was you know playing cards he was jovial he was making you know jokes um you know he was lack of a better term he was free like he knew what was going to happen. And so in hindsight, you suspect that was the same place that your dad was in the night before, the last time you saw him, maybe emotionally. Yes. But, uh, you know, obviously no one wants to even think about connecting the dots at sure. that moment. No, it's horrifying. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, looking back on it, sure. So you told me you had to testify at some point. So mm-hmm. was this during your mother's trial? Yeah. So, uh, was it during the trial phase or was it during the penalty phase? That you- no, no, no. It was uh, during the trial phase okay. um, because we had to get interviewed by the Crown. Okay. Uh, you know, as far as being witness to what we understood about stuff. Sure. So the Crown prosecutor didn't bring my sister on, but based on my testimony, they wanted to have me sort of repeat it on the record. Okay. So just basically um, more like talking about my mom and dad's character Mm-hmm. and what sort of the feelings were 
about the whole thing. And, you know, it was the type of thing where uh, I explained my my dad's mental state, but never had offered the extra part that I just told you about the, the time with my ex-wife's dad. Sure. And, and kind of correlating those two together. Right. And then just, you know, at the at the end of everything, yes, my, my mom's the responsible party for my dad not still being with us. Right. But at, at the end of the day, she's still my mom. Yeah. You have supported your mom throughout this whole process. Oh, yeah. She was in jail. It was like around eight years, right? Uh, Yeah, she had gotten time off or like that double time for, for being in pretrial, that kind right. of stuff. Yeah. So your mom has been paroled and she is living with you now and uh, has been since February of this year. You see her every day. Yep. And do you guys ever talk about like the old times or? Um, sometimes not directly. Right. But, you know, there's been indirect memories where things, you know, involve uh, my dad mm -hmm. and she'll bring up, you know, when you and me and, and, and dad, you know, if it was sure. for my sister or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So she's had a long road to mental and emotional recovery from all that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the psychiatrist within the penitentiary system really helped her process. And she, she availed herself of the, of the, the help that was offered her. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I think that's, that's a big sign of, of somebody who wants to get better. Mm -hmm. Now that she's been paroled, mm -hmm. I mean, she's under a life sentence. Does yes. she have to report to somebody? No, she has, um, uh, her, Role officer check in like once a month. Okay. Um, just to make sure things are going well. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we we started a um, uh, a vegetable garden recently together. Yeah. Planted a bunch of other flowers. So what she's, are you growing in the vegetable garden? Um, we're growing uh, romaine lettuce. Wow. Green lettuce, uh, Swiss chard, uh, carrots, and uh, green beans. Cool. Yeah. No, no rhubarb. No. <laughs> I, I, I like me some rhubarb crumble. So I was going to say, if you if you have no, any rhubarb. I'll... No rhubarb, no apple. So we can't have apple rhubarb pie or nothing. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> but we just had a, a taco night recently. Mm -hmm. And to be able to have fresh, uh, fresh lettuce. Yeah, that's cool. Awesome. We're going to have some uh, Roman tomatoes coming up pretty soon too. So that's something that's therapeutic for her because she always liked to garden. Even when, you know, before all of this happened. Right. Um, you know, she had, you know, quite the green thumb. Sure. So being able to do this and, you know, water the plants every morning and, and, you know, go through stuff and, you know, she, it's, it's, it, it certainly is a form of therapy for her. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, just by how you lit up when you're talking about the vegetable garden, that it's kind of a good therapy for the two of you to be doing something fun together too. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it was it was a big transformation of this little front yard in our our townhouse complex. Cool. Do you feel like the courts got it right when it came to what happened? Well, she had she had written goodbye notes. Yeah. To a bunch of people. That's myself, uh, my sister, my nephew, a couple of friends and family, and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, effectively trying to say goodbye while not placing any sort of blame for lack of funds or, or anything like that mm -hmm. against my dad. Right. She had written that, you know, he was sleeping at the time and he didn't feel a thing. Mm -hmm. Yet, um, 
you know, when she also talks about the, the knife in the ear thing, mm-hmm. uh, then there's something active going on where she just snapped and disassociated. Right. And knew that she wasn't going to get him back. So she was going to... Make sure the transition for your, you and Shannon was a lot easier. Yes. Yeah. And in writing this stuff down, she gave a visibility of guilt. Mm. Where had she not done anything like that? Right. Might she have had to spend time for manslaughter instead of murder? Right. Perhaps. Mm. Interesting. So did they did they get it wrong? Being completely impartial. Yeah. And that's that's all, difficult. That's impossible. Because, yeah. uh, you know, this is a situation where my sister and my nephew and, and any of their family members are literally stuck in the middle. Yeah. Because, you know, he's not here. She was the cause of it, however it came about. And then there's everybody who's effectively collateral damage afterwards. Mm-hmm. So trying to take myself out of that middle area mm. in whatever way she was responsible for it, she was responsible for it. So she understands that and knew that that time had to be spent for doing what she did. Right. But if you're looking at it in the same vein from even just the financial side of things, like I said before, you know, this is going to be the type of thing where, you know, if, if people don't have RSP set up, if they don't have stuff to fall back on, then, you know, you can, you can see this cropping up more and more. Sure. The big message is like, take care of yourself while you can. In, in whatever way possible, whether it's financially, mentally, emotionally, you know, if, if you need help, go ahead and and take it. Yeah. Thank you for having this conversation with me. I know it wasn't easy. Thank you for, for hosting it. Because it, it's it's good to just sort of get it out there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it's not necessarily out to all your listeners, but <laughs> yeah. but um, but just to be able to to vocalize it and and just have someone be able to to listen. So I thank you for listening. I want to take a moment to thank David again for his courage in discussing such a difficult situation so candidly. It struck me how this kind of tragedy, which some can paint in a very black and white way, is much more complex than that. There is so much nuance to every story, and we must always remember that behind every true crime are families who are suffering. We wish nothing but the best to David and Joanne moving forward. And that's it for Dark Poutine, episode 277, The Alexander Family Tragedy. That's right, it's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All right, Matthew is back for the rest of the show, and uh, we will listen to our first voicemail. This one's about two minutes long. Hi, Mike and Matthew. Uh, My name's Michelle, and I'm brand new to your podcast. 
uh, just started listening about a month ago, and I listen every day, totally compelled to try and catch up. Um, but I just finished listening to the Russ, Russ Williams duo, and I just want to share with you a little bit about my take on it as I was living in Brighton, Ontario, at that time. My husband was a member of the Canadian Air Force, and we were hearing, you know, news tidbits about these attacks going on on these women in Tweed. And I'm like, oh, man, like that's, I don't know, it's like 100 kilometers from Brighton. You know what? That person probably doesn't even have a car. Like there's just no way that, because I, I was concerned about my safety. My husband was away often as they were very active and worked work a lot out of that base. And um, it was absolutely astounding when we found out that it was the wing commander who was committing these heinous crimes. Um, it was really disturbing to think about how he chose his victims by, you know, this type that he looked at, these young girls. And um, it was just such a scary, scary incident. And you guys told the story so well with so much respect for Jessica and Mary Franz. Um, at one point, you even referred to how the police were canvassing after Mary Franz was found and they had knocked on our door. They said, you know, do you know anything about this? And I, I admitted, I drove by the house because I was curious, where is this relationship to my home? So I just want to thank you so much for the work you do. You're so kind and so caring. You really, really do a great job of putting, you know, keeping the perpetrators as a muted voice and giving a voice to the victims. So I'm grateful to you guys. And I just want to tell you, go take a shit in your head. Thanks so much. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, that was, that was a tough story. Like, y you learn that the wing commander of a Canadian Forces base is actually a, a, a rapist and a murderer and, and, and a weird pervert who breaks into houses and puts on other people's undergarments. Usually when there's stories about people like this, it's uh, in something they did wrong in the field or within the barracks. Sure, right? yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, this one was a very, very strange one. And, uh, well, thank you. It's it's interesting to hear from somebody who was living in the hood, in the neighborhood at the time, and actually was affected in a way that, you know, not everybody was because their husband was a, a member of the armed forces. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating to hear from people like that. It is. Thanks for your call, Michelle. Thank you. Let's listen to our next voicemail. Hi, guys. I just listened to your episode where a caller called in from Port Coquitlam, and I fly there to visit family that I have in BC. I am from Ontario, and I've really been enjoying listening to your episodes um, involving true crime. I uh, don't have anything to do with crime, but I was in a catastrophic car accident in 2018, and so after surviving that and, you know, coming back home and stuff, I've, I've gotten really into podcasts, whether that be inspiration, listening to inspirational events or true crime, or I just, I love stories. I love listening, especially now. And, um, yeah, so I'll do what everyone else does and I will say, go shit in your hats, even though I'm not exactly sure what that means. Okay, bye. <laughs> it means exactly what it... <laughs> it means literally go it's, it's It's a nicer way of saying go F yourself, really. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, she didn't give her her name. Yeah, she didn't give her name, Mil- but that's okay. Millicent. Millicent is that your the name that you're going to give her? Yeah. Um. Uh, okay, we should give her a job. We should probably give a job to the first person too. Oh no. Okay. I'm, yeah. You're making me go back. Yeah, I'm making you scroll back in your notes. Well, I think it's we're in the height of summer now. Sure. It's gorgeous. So. Michelle, who called earlier, I think she's a flip-flop ambassador. Flip-flop ambassador. Well, yeah. that's kind of nice. So does she just give them out to people who are well, wearing amb- chunky ambassador shoes? ambassador is a little bit sort of the wrong word. Okay. It's enforcer. So it, essentially, if somebody has ugly ones on, she kicks them off the beach. Okay. Yeah. Or socks, wearing socks with their sandals kind of thing. <laughs> Can you wear socks with flip-flops? I don't think it would work. Uh, but, you could if you were wearing the Japanese tabby socks okay. with, with the toe. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Flip. Yeah. But yeah, socks with sandals, not good. Yeah, not good. And you know who you are. Yeah. And okay, so she's a flip-flop enforcer. <laughs> enforcer, not ambassador. So what does what does our... M- la- Millicent? Millicent do. I, I think she's a screenwriter. What... Does she write on screens or is she no, actually... actually writes... Movies and yeah, TV and such. So she's on strike right now. Well, she's Canadian, so she's not. Well, they're they're not working either. Oh, are they not? No, nobody's working right now. Oh, why? Because it's summer. No, because because the the industry is shut down. Even in Canada. Yes. Oh, do they have the same unions or something? Well, the WGC. It's a guild. Right. Yeah, we won't get into it. Someone, someone. <laughs> I'm fascinated. If it. someone knows all the ins and outs of guilds, I was a member of the Directors Guild, but I'm interested to hear somebody else's take. If you know what's going on in Canada as far as the writers' strike okay. with the WGA, call us and we'll we'll play that on the episode. So Millicent, she's she's writing some stuff on her own right now. Oh, she's just doing she's, doing her she's thing. She's kind of okay with the strike because she's like, it's summer. I'm just gonna hang out. She's doing it for herself. To keep her creativity flowing. No, she's banking it, so so she's ahead when when Good this strikes over. Yeah. That's a smart idea. <laughs> Thank you for your call, Melissa. Thank you. <laughs> That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. On to Patreon and Donut Money donors. Uh, first up, as far as Patreon goes, we have Santoy McKinley, and I don't know where they're from. So, Santoy, where do you think Santoy is from? Miami Beach. Miami Beach. We've had people from Miami Beach before. Yeah, well, it happens. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So... Uh, what does Santoy do there in Miami Beach? Sandcastle. Sandcastle. Just so, just one word. Sandcastle. So Matthew is Sandcastles. Matthew is decompensating here. <laughs> sandcastles. Okay. So you know those people that make beautiful sandcastles on the beach? So probably hired by the tourism department and and maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that, that's what Santoy does. There you go. Or, you know, be a smart thing for like a restaurant or local business to hire Santoy to build sandcastles and then brand them specifically for the... White Castle. Exactly. White Castle (laughs) sandcastles. So then you can uh, 
not feel well after. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, keep up the good work, Santoy. And Santoy. thank you for your patronage. Next we have Tony McKee. And I don't know where Tony with an I is from. Tony with an I. Tony with an I. Tony McKee? Yes. Is from Edinburgh. Edinburgh, Scotland. My grandmother, Rabina, a.k.a. Ruby Brown, was from Edinburgh. Rabina? Rabina, and she came over on the Lusitania. Oh. Yeah. Did she really? She did. Yeah. So, uh, what does Tony from Edinburgh do? Tony is one of the three in Tony, Tony, Tony. Oh. The band. Wow. Yeah. The band? Didn't it? What song did they sing? Poison, I think, was one of their songs, wasn't it? I think it was. Yeah. Yeah, Poison. Yep. It was on one of my uh, mixtapes. <laughs> Speaking of mixtapes, you had you found one in the car that you were in. It was like a mix CD. Feels Good was one of the songs. Yeah, so I was in a rental car because I rent one. Feels when Good, I, that's the one. When I come here. And I needed somewhere to put my phone. Yep. And I saw that there was a CD player, so I pushed eject thinking the little thing would come out. So, so you I could, could lay your set phone, my phone on it. Yeah, yeah. And there was a CD in it. Oh, no. Physical media. Someone is missing their CD So today. I thought, oh, God, I'm going to play this. It just said mix on it. I'm like, it's going to be horrible. But it had like Jamiroquai and MGMT and some stuff. I'm not I a fan of Jamiroquai. I really? think that guy's a bit of a douche canoe. But MGMT, I really like. Yeah. So yeah. lots of other stuff as well. Cool. So I was jamming to someone else's mixtape on the way here. Well, there you go. As I went to the McDonald's to pick us up lunch. <laughs> much, much better McDonald's than in Surrey. Yeah, well. <laughs> you went to the one up up the road near our buddy Wes's place. Yeah. That's that's where Wes lives in that. Yeah, it was clean and nobody was overdosing in it. It was like, yeah. I think it's called Brookswood. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a really nice little neighborhood. Brookswood. Yeah. Anyway. Well, thank you, Tony, Tony, Tony. Tony, Tony, Tony. Tell the other two Tonys thank you yeah, as well. Yeah, well, this Tony is the one with the I. Right. Not the Y or the E. I, I, E. No, there's a Tony with a oh, Y. Oh, with a E with an I, accent aigu. Aigu. Yes. Not grove. <laughs> no. You know how I remembered which one's grove? No. It goes down, like, into the grave. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the igu is She's just the other one. Takes off. Yeah. Looks like a, a rocket ship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, thank you, patrons. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, let's check and see if we had any donut money this week. I don't know if we did. I betcha. Pardon donut money. <laughs> Do you think pardon donuts? Pardon donuts. Are we taking bets? I bet you whatever donut money we got that we didn't get donut money. I will double it, and you, you, and you will give me the same. I don't understand what you're saying. Whatever, if there's, I'm saying there's no donut money, you say there is. If there is donut money, I have to give you that extra. Well, guess what? What? There is donut money no! this week. No! Uh, this week, our donut money is from our good friend, Stephanie, Stephanie Weeb. We love you, Stephanie. And she is from Terrace, British Columbia. Thank you. Long time Yumber Yarder. Uh, what does Stephanie do up there in Terrace, British Columbia? A, a girl who lived across the street from me moved to Terrace and was a school teacher. Stephanie just sits on the terrace. She sits on the terrace <laughs> in Terrace. 
Well, there you go. Well, if that's on what her you ass on the terrace. Well, if that's what you got to do, you got to do it. I I don't think I've been to terrace. Uh, it is up there. Uh, next we have from Rothsay, New Brunswick, Andrea McAuliffe. Andrea oh. McAuliffe. Hello. Andrea. Or Andrea, if I'm mispronouncing it. Andrea. And is, uh, as New Brunswick is our only truly bilingual province, it could be either or. So, Andrea or Andrea. I think we should say Andrea. Andrea. It sounds a little fancier. Fancy. It does sound fancier. So, uh, what does Andrea do in Rothsay, New Brunswick, Matthew? She, She builds bridges. A bridge builder. Yep. So, is it... Uh, actual bridges? Yes. Oh, okay. Like hard hat, like literally getting those steel girder things in, all of that. Really? Yeah. That's really cool. Um, did you know that there are covered bridges in New Brunswick still? I did. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting. You probably can't actually use them with a car though. Really? Well, I assume they probably can't hold them if they're that old. Well, I think. Can you drive on that? Yeah, you can. Yeah, we're looking at them here. Uh, there's a lot of them, actually. It looks like 13 covered bridges uh, still in New Brunswick. Just pro- just because you you don't want it to get rained on the entire time, but you can be covered when you're crossing the water. When, when you're, oh, no, wait. No, this is more than... Oh, dear. So I was wrong. It's not just 13. It was like 13 in one area. So wow, there's a that, whole slew. There is a slew of covered bridges in New Brunswick. Okay. She doesn't do the covered ones. She does the big new ones. The world's longest covered bridge is in Heartland in the St. John River Valley, and it's 390 meters long, and it's 1,282 feet. That makes me want to go. It opened in 1901, and lightning, which is interesting, lighting, oh, sorry, I was going to say lightning was installed. I can't read. You've heard it here first, folks. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so lighting was first installed in 1924. So until then, it was really dark in the covered, the lo- world's longest covered bridge. Why did they do covered bridges? Why not? Okay. <laughs> you know? Fair enough. Why the heck not? Why not? And that's it for patrons and donut money donors. Thank you, folks. Thank you. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us Donut Money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And once again, until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. See ya. Bye.
Hi. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now, she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.